I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Richard Pierce. Originally from the UK, Richard's a long-term resident of Totori Prefecture, the least populated prefecture in Japan. He works as a nature guide and adventure tour leader in Japan and Bhutan. Alongside his love for nature, Richard is a practitioner of Shugendo, an ancient form of mountain asceticism. In 2021, along with his wife, Katsumi, he founded a nonprofit organization called Sustainable Daisen. Sustainable Daisen's mission is to promote sustainable practices which will ensure the survival of the Japanese giant salamander and the conservation of its environment. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And second, thank you for being on the program. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your show and uh, giving me a platform to talk about the Japanese giant salamanders and their situation. So, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you today. So thank you. Um, so can you just start by introducing people to the to the to this Japanese giant salamander? I'm sure a lot of people have not heard of them. OK, um, it's a very special animal. So it's uh, so there's three basically three types of uh, giant salamanders in the world. Uh, you've got the North American one, which is called the Hellbender, typically dramatic American name. So kudos for that. And um, then you've got the Chinese giant salamander, and then you've got the Japanese giant salamander. Um, the Hellbender can grow up to about seventy centimeters in length, so which is about two and a half foot if i'm not mistaken um and the uh, the chinese one is actually the biggest and can grow up to um six feet so 180 centimeters and the japanese giant salamander can grow up to 150 centimeters which is five foot in length um and yeah the 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 hellbenders doing reasonably well but also has many issues like many um, animals in the river systems the chinese giant salamander is um, really in trouble and almost extinct in the in its true form in the wild they they are farmed hugely um, but yeah it's to, to the actual pure chinese giant salamanders are very rare now and then we've got the ones that I'm working with, which is the Japanese giant salamander. Um, so they are considered a, a living fossil. So they're, um, they're basically their, their DNA and their appearance hasn't really changed much in the last 23 million years. So they're an incredible species, really. Um, so... Yeah. Um, also, weight-wise, that you know, they can grow up to basically the the, the size of a, a small adult, and pretty much exactly the same size as my Japanese wife Kazumi. So five foot in length and around about up to thirty-five to forty kilos in weight. So yes, they're they're really incredibly huge, um, special animals. I mean that that that's the general general introduction for them. But obviously, I could talk lots about their present conservation status and things like that. Well, I would like to get there in a little while. I would like to know a little bit more ab about them first. Like uh, when they're when they hatch out of the e are the eggs big, and then when they hatch out of the eggs, are they how how big are they then? How long do they do they grow? How long do how long till they reach sexual maturity? Um, and one, once they do, then, then what, what does a creature that size eat? Sure. Okay. So they, uh, let's start from the beginning. So the, the breeding season for the Japanese giant salamander is mid August to mid September. And at that time, um, the largest males, uh, clean out and defend nests from other males. And then the females will come along and deposit eggs within that nest. So the the the, the large male is considered uh, a den master or a nushi in Japanese. Um, and despite being the the fiercest 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 of the salamanders in that uh, area, they actually spend six months per year being a father and looking after the eggs. 
So the after six months. Wait, wait, wait. So, so is this place is when 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 she lays the eggs? Are they do they like to have a place with a lot of gravel, or is it going to be like an overhang where predators can't get to them, or is it what 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 makes a good den? Sorry, before we go on. No problem. So yeah, they, no, they they all um, find a uh, basically a, a, like a cavity in the in the riverbank uh, with a hole not much bigger than the size of the salamander. So it's that's easy to defend against predators and um, other males. So it is that. So basically, yeah, it's like a like a, a, a cavern almost. With a, with a like a, a pipe, a natural pipe connecting it, and there. So salamanders do need to. They, they're amphibians and they're considered fully aquatic, but they actually do need to breathe air. So there will be a kind of air pocket in there as well. Um, yeah, and and up several hundred um, eggs are laid at any one time, and then the males fertilize them, and uh, from that point onwards, the um, the females leave the males to it. They, they just deliver the eggs and they go about their business. Um, and yeah, so after about six months, very small, and these eggs are tiny, um, just a few millimeters across, uh, a few centimeters across, I should say. And um, after about six months, they hatch out into the uh, river system. And given the high numbers, basically most of them don't survive. And a lot of them are eaten by other salamanders or fish. And then they'll spend the next few years hiding. And it's very, very difficult to, to see larvae. Um, I did recently on, on a river survey, and that was the first time I've seen them in, you know, live in the river with all from the last few years of doing regular surveys so that was really special um they get to sexual maturity at 15 years old so they're really like many uh cold uh, cold environment creatures they grow very slowly so they uh, about 15 years it's not 100 percent known but that's the estimate and they can actually potentially live up to 100 years in in the wild which is pretty special and what do they eat so basically they'll eat anything meat like that floats in front of their mouth um probably in this area at least the frogs uh make up their main diet but also fish uh snakes i've seen evidence of them eating moles i've even the worst one i saw was uh one had its stomach pumped and um as as part of research and inside was a, a small kitten that had been drowned in a plastic bag so it's basically it detected you know a meat like object in within the plastic bag and swallowed it whole so are they all, mainly, sorry go ahead um, I've, there's also evidence of them eating other large salamanders, and there's a case of a 80 centimeter salamander swallowing and eating a 40 centimeter um, salamander. And they know that because both were chipped, um, like a, like a microchip, and uh, the the smaller one ended up inside the bigger one. And are they are they mainly uh, predators or scavengers or both? One hundred percent predators. Yeah, so they're they're ambush predators. So they um, they'll sit and wait, and basically, if anything is uh, daft enough to swim in front of its mouth, it forms like a big suction cup and just <laughs> swallows it down in one. It's really it's incredible to watch. I've got a couple of examples on my instagram page and if you you literally you can't slow video down slow enough to see the the fish or the frog just disappear inside and are they do they stay in in uh the 
the the tube-like places, or would they be in the middle of a river for that, or middle of a stream? Yeah, so basically they're, they're nocturnal. Um, so during the day, they would have their favorite um, hiding spot, which is often in a in a hole in the in the river bank. But it can also be under large rocks in the stream or a stream or river. And it's quite incredible to see, you know, these these huge. I mean, I often see 80, 90 centimeters, like three foot giant salamanders. And as you approach, they'll just, you know, slink off and disappear under a rock like, you know, like magic almost. And again, but yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, so so they spend their days hidden. And then in, in the uh, at nighttime, they'll move more into the center of the the river and sit in wait. Well, that's that's how I get to see them. So I just have a couple more questions about sort of general their lives, since, again, most of us have never heard about them very much before we get on to conservation questions. Sure. Um, so excluding humans. Well, first, before we get there. What do they prefer rivers or streams or both? Uh, do they do they go into lakes at all or is it what is yeah, their preferred it, habitat? OK, so it needs to be uh, flowing oxygen rich water. So generally speaking, they're found um, in the, the smaller ones, especially in the breeding areas are in the headwaters. So nearer the source of the rivers, which generally, because Japan is obviously a mountainous country, uh, tend to be at altitudes of 400 meters and above, generally speaking. So that's a lot of snow melt and uh, yeah, so which is oxygen rich water. And then you can often find them in the in the middle section of a river, which is often where the rice fields are. Um, And then the larger ones can be found nearer the ocean. Um, and that's basically because it's not that they particularly like that habitat and like to be in that area, but due to problems in the river, they often get washed down the river and because of man-made barriers are unable to return to the midsections or the upper sections. So um, do they, uh, sorry if this question is out of left field, but if they, since they're since they're so much aquatic mm. if if okay salmon are known for returning to the same stream as as where they were born hatched started whatever um but it's about 97 percent, i believe for most salmon go to the stream of origin so if they get wiped out in another stream there's still three percent you know there's a little bit of error so and i was just talking to a, a guy last weekend about beavers and how they can go overland sometimes. What happens if there's a lot of salamanders in one river or mm-hmm. one river system and they get extirpated from another? Can they ever make their way back to the other or or are they just out of luck forever? Do you see my question? Yeah. Um, basically, there isn't enough data to, to um, or research being done to actually say for sure that that's what they want to do. But certainly they want they they want to move up the river to an area that they originally came from, whether that's the exact same branch of the river or whether they would be happy to move into a a feeder river or anything like that. That that information isn't known exactly. However, like I said, they they are considered fully aquatic, but they need to breathe air. but they are able to come out of the water, although it's not very common. But I, I have seen videos of them walking along a, a forest road next to the river, for example. But that's extremely rare. Um, but basically, the main problem is, is that the Japanese rivers have been degraded so much in so many weirs, which are uh, concrete barriers to slow down the flow, plus huge dams, that they're unable to move upstream to to a a preferred habitat or from where they came from so i have one more question before we get to to the the actual problems and and thank you for anticipating that but excluding humans do they have any major predators once they get to be huge no 
They don't. So they used to be uh, an otter, a Japanese otter, but that uh, went extinct about 100 years ago. And it's presumed that predated on salamanders of a certain size. Um, but yeah, the only the only prey on on salamanders of a certain size is other salamanders. So once it gets to a certain size, be it two feet or so or longer, then basically there are no predators existing in Japan. Great. So um, you've you can you talk more about? Okay, so I guess I guess the next sort of subsection is just threats to them. You can go more sure. on about weirs if you want, or if you can just talk about other threats to them as well. Sure. I mean, you can basically break down the the threats to the future of the Japanese giant salamanders into three categories. Um, and they're all, of course, man-made uh, threats caused by humans. So the first one is is what I've been talking about so far, and that's the um, basically the fragmentation of the river system. So by installing concrete um, walls and concrete what we call weirs, so which a weir doesn't hold water like a dam, but it basically is like a, a, it when water drops off it, it creates drags and slows down the river flow. Um, and then you've got dams as well. So what that means, especially in an area where there's lots of weirs, such as around here, is that during the heavy rains, salamanders are washed down and then they cannot return back up. And the further they get, you know, the closer they get to the ocean, the more pollution there is, The uh, just generally the conditions are less favorable for their survival. And then an important thing to know is that if you ever do visit Japan um, and you do see the rivers that are in areas where there's people, they're really ugly and they've all been concreted up. Nearly, I would say 99% of the rivers you'll see in Japan as a tourist are concreted monstrosities, really. It's, it's quite depressing. Um, and the reason for a lot of this work is obviously to slow down the water because of the, the threat of flooding and everything like that. But basically the, the river systems were straightened by man in the 1950s and 1960s as a way to make the rice fields at the side of the rivers more uniform in shape. So that uh, this sounds quite a um, bit of a conspiracy, but it's not, it's, it's genuine fact is that um, they were st they were made to be more uniform, so that it would be easier to um, work out how much fertilizer and chemicals were needed to grow rice if it's a perfect square shape. So what this meant was that you know, so if you straighten the river up, then obviously the water is going to flow faster. So therefore, they installed all this concrete everywhere to slow down the water to what it would be if it was meandering and, and natural. So, so that's that's the real, you know, depressing uh, situation in terms of the the um, construction work that continues to uh, be put into the rivers because of you know farming practices. So that's that's one. And then wait before I, I have another yeah. another question back from just just how common would they have been if we again take humans out of the picture? Mm. Is it like one one salamander every mile or one salamander or you know one every kilometer and a half or is it how common were they at one point i mean salmon you can see pictures of yeah. of they they cover the entire stream are there were there a lot of of them at one point or were they always pretty rare sorry yeah. to interrupt yeah no that's a really good question um well you would think when you've got a, ri a river that's perhaps only two, three, four meters wide, and, and, and a salamander can be 80, 90, or 100 centimeters across, you'd think that they would be quite spread out, like like you said, one every mile or something. But I can tell you from, from, the, from my own studies of this area and finding small pockets of good habitat, I'm finding them every 50 meters or so. 
So which, you know, so in a kilometre, that's 200. So, you know, they're really quite common. Well, well, so they must have been really um, numerous, especially in the upper areas uh, of, you know, smaller salamanders, 40 to 50 centimetres. So there's a lot more of these giant creatures in this habitat than you would think. Or the potential, anyway, to have a really large population of them. Thank you for that. Um, so, so the second threat. Yes. So the second threat is hybridization. So hybridization caused by uh, crossbreeding with the Chinese giant salamanders. So basically, in 1951, the Japanese giant salamander was being um eaten out of existence and over overly hunted and harvested so the japanese government at that point declared them a special natural treasure which meant that only licensed individuals of which there are very few can legally touch them so this seems to have basically worked in terms of of stopping the mass um, harvesting of them for food. However, some so the, the Chinese giant salamander, is, which is still um, farmed massively in China now, was introduced to Japan as a way of kind of getting around these rules. So they were farmed in Japan. And then unfortunately or inevitably, they uh, many of them ex- escaped into the river system and then basically the hybrid so that the offspring of a Chinese giant salamander and a Japanese giant salamander grows faster than both of those species both of its parent species and is also more aggressive and the aggression is the key point so it outcompetes the 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 native population so what we've got in certain rivers in Japan now is that hybrids of, of all but taken over and one one uh, quite famous example so any of your listeners have been to kyoto then there's a big river that runs through where the kind of geisha district is and you know it's, it's very grand so that's called the kamo river and then dna testing in that river has shown that now like over 98 percent of the salamanders in that river are hybrids so it's 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 done um and then you have the problem of then, you know, moving by themselves to other river systems or misguided people picking them up, taking them home, putting them in the bath, keeping them as a pet. A week later, realizing that was a stupid idea, driving an hour to a different river and popping them in. So that that's hybrid hybrids are spreading um, across Japan at quite an alarming rate, which. Yeah, so that's really a huge threat. So, do you have any questions about that that the hybrid problem? Well, when you get through with the three threats, I would like for you, insofar as possible, to talk about ways to address each of these threats, if possible. Sure. Okay, and then the third problem is probably more of a, an obvious one: is the uh, pollution caused by industry and agriculture. But specifically, uh, particularly in this region, agriculture. So, as I already said, you know that they're relying on oxygen-rich water. So, a lot of there's a big push for meat in Japan these days. Traditionally, Japan wasn't a, a meat-eating nation, um, but it certainly is now. Um, and then, so basically, a lot of runoff from chicken farms, pig farms, and cow farms. And when I say farms, animal farms in Japan are all basically factory farming. You, you, you almost never, ever see a cow or a pig or a chicken outside. So these basically animal factories create lots of waste. And a lot of that waste ends up in the river. And that means the high levels of nitrates, nitrites and phosphorus, but particularly the nitrates, 
mean that uh, plant species which take up the oxygen from the water are um, a, a big problem. As long as, as well as other other chemicals from from rice farming and, and other vegetable farming, meaning that basically it's that the rivers are really becoming livable for any beast, be it fish or salamander. So, okay. So let's talk. Thank you for that. It's um, I'm just I'm I'm not really responding because I just um kind of overwhelmed at the uh daunting uh task of survival for more or less any wild non-humans at this point yeah I mean, it's just it's just really overwhelming yeah i i haven't even warmed up yet <laughs> but that's that you've only heard the the uh the least concerning aspects of it to be honest yeah okay well well i am not one for shirking away from problems faced by the world so let's go ahead sure um well let, let me address some well i'd inject a little bit of hope into the um, equation for now and how to address in theory these threats so if we start with the the fragmentation of the habitat, so where you've got weirs and dams and other man-made obstacles blocking the way. So something we've been working on, and there are some cases across Japan, but not enough by any means, is to install bypass slopes and ramps at each of these weirs so that the salamanders can move up and down as they need to. Um, so that that's the plan, and we have had some successes in doing that already. But the problem comes down to money, of course. They're expensive to do that. And just political will and will of the general population to commit any kind of resources to doing that. Um, it's um, of the feeder rivers in this environment. So uh, perhaps I should quickly uh, also talk about. Um, sorry to jump around topics, but to discuss the river basin that our efforts are focused on, because um, it's a really special place. Um, so I live on the side of a sacred mountain called Mount Dyson. And it's famous for having um, clear, beautiful water. And this is meant, uh, but, but you know, it's 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 a mountain that rises straight, literally straight up from the Sea of Japan. So it's it's right on the coast almost. It's a pretty incredible place. Um, so Dyson has short, cool, oxygen-rich waters running from near the peak all the way down to the ocean. So some of these rivers are only about six, seven kilometers long. So what's that, like three, four miles? So they're really short. But it has or had a healthy population of Japanese giant salamanders. And where we're focusing our efforts on, the breeding area is only perhaps around 50 meters above sea level. And this is, makes it the, the lowest place in the world the lowest breeding area for giant salamanders anywhere in the world. Um, but because it's so close to the ocean, that also means that's where the humans are. So it, we have more conflict, there's more agriculture. Um, so it's, you know, the, the, the population here is, is really under threat. And yeah, but then because it's it's almost it's because it's quite isolated in itself, we hope that that will form a kind of natural barrier to the hybrid problem. So therefore, we feel it should be a, a real focus for um, conservation of the species overall. I think you know 
instead of focusing as much on rivers that are basically already gone in terms of the hybrids have taken over, then we should be able to focus all our efforts into this area. So anyway, sorry, I digress. To so with, with the with the bypass slopes and the weirs to en uh, enable the salamanders to move up and down. So we've been pushing hard for the local government or local organisations to have a plan even to do something about it, about these weirs. Because I often find and record and publish uh, video and photographic evidence of the salamanders night after night, every single night, just clawing up against these concrete walls trying to move until they get so exhausted they just look like they're dead in the river and then you know have enough energy just to move into the shadows again it's really depressing um but yeah it's uh, to to get the money and and the permissions needed it is it's a really big challenge and it's something we're working towards but we did manage with the help believe it or not of the US marines uh, managed to install four um, ramps made from natural from stones that were already in the in the area of the weirs to enable within an area we've identified as being particularly important as a breeding area. So within that area where we the Marines and I built these ramps, we've we've created a kind of uh, a sanctuary in itself. Does that make sense? Sorry. Absolutely. Absolutely. No. no. That's, okay, great. Yeah. So basically, I, I had the plan in my mind. is like, well, okay, in the bigger river, it's going to be hard to to move rocks around enough that it will make a difference. But in the, the feeder rivers, which is where they're, they're breeding anyway, um, so I thought, well, you know, if we were to move stones in the area, so we're not bringing in, you know, extra material and diseases and everything else but then i thought well to do that i'm going to need a, basically an, uh, an, an army and then around that time i had some three u.s marines came to um stay at my guest house in the area and i, I took them for a, a japanese giant salamander viewing tour and I, I talked about the problems and my plans and one of them turned around and said right i'm going to go back to the base i'm going to get a group of people together and we're going to come up and we're going to help you move all those rocks. And sure enough, a couple of months later, 23 U.S. military came up, super enthusiastic and helped me build these these ramps. So that was incredible. Um, but that's, you know, so that, that that's a start. But in the main river, we still need, you know, properly engineered, expensive ramps installed. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then ideally, obviously, if, if the salamanders need food as well. So if we create ramps that fish cannot um, get, you know, use, then that's going to be, we know, we'll have to work out a way to, to, to put more fish in the river. But so ideally, if we would be able to create like fish ladders, or, you know, create and install fish ladders that salamanders and fish can use. That would be the perfect answer, perfect fix for now, at least. OK, so what about um, what about problem two, hybridization? Is that? Yeah, so the, honestly, there pretty much isn't a fix to that, to be honest. So I, I think at this point of time, so the, the plan at the moment is just that, that when when that if they find the salamander, take it out to do any research on it, which basically is very little research being done due to lack of funding. Then if they identify it as a, a Chinese giant salamander or a hybrid, hybrid, sorry, which is difficult to do anyway, then they remove it from the environment. And basically, I've, I've seen pictures and videos of, of these old swimming pools just full of these hybrids just crawling all over the top of each other because they don't have a proper plan what to do with them. The perhaps humane thing would be to put them out of their misery, but no, they just shove them all in a big swimming pool. So 
I think the only way to address this is better education. So to, to make people more aware of the risk of moving salamander from one river to the other. But apart from that, I don't think there's a lot that we can do. Just, put, you know, we, we've done eDNA surveys recently and hopefully we'll get results soon. And I'm pretty sure there's no hybrids in this river basin. And then if that's the case, then we should focus our efforts on, on these areas. Right. <clears throat> and then in terms of, and then to really um, talk about the third problem, which is the um, the pollution and yeah the, the animal waste issue. This is a huge one, and um, it's something I've been really sh really shocked with recently because um, it turns out that the Animal farms in this area where I live on the side of this sacred mountain have been burying raw, untreated animal waste directly into the ground by the ton. So, and this is an area that most people drink well water. And it turns, it, it turns out that thousands and thousands of, uh, of thousands and potentially tens of thousands or even hundreds and thousands of tons of raw chicken poop especially has been dug into they they get big diggers dig a hole put it in and cover it up and it took it and like i saw signs of it around for years and I was, you know, I asked, and what's going on? This can't be what I think it is. And it's, oh, you know, the rules are not sure, and they need it for honeybees and all these kind of stupid stories. But it, it wasn't until they actually tried to do it right next to my house, these huge diggers came up and these dumper trucks rolled across the grass that I stopped them. I literally went out there and I stopped them, and I reported it. And now the the prefecture has said, well, yes that's illegal, that shouldn't be happening. But it's been going on for years. So the damage that years of this this plan, which the local government is at least at least complicit with, I, I, I can't even imagine the damage that that's, that's must have already caused and is gonna cause in the future. So it turns out this prefecture has no limits to the amount of animal waste that can be put on the ground, right? So you've got all these animal farms everywhere now, and they're really pushing for more animal farms because you've got the 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 the, the rivers provide free water, right? So, but they've got no controls, they've got no limits, no safety limits about how how much it can be put on the ground or in the ground. So at least they've said that in the ground is clearly not adding. Um, nutrients to the ground it's industrial waste I've got them to admit that and they're investigating that but it's taken me an English guy to push them so it's just really shocking and then when then you've got all the cow farms and the pig farms and they're basically putting I've got video evidence of putting of them putting you know 40 50 60 tons on the ground and then getting a plow and plowing it in and they say, oh, this is for nutrients. This is fertilizer. But clearly, anyone with a basic grasp of science can see that this is dangerous. And I, I even had a, a, a meeting at the town office with the people from the prefecture investigating the, the burying the waste problem and the town officials. And, and I got them to admit on camera, it's like, do you accept that there is a basic limit to how much... Uh, animal waste can be put in the ground there's clearly a, a, a safe limit right and they agreed but then basically said oh well we trust farmers to do what's best even farms that have been in trouble for industrial waste problems before so honestly just it's this this is what I'm, i've been uh, engaged with and, and my wife as well and been having meetings and it's and we're having to do it all we're having to do it all ourselves with almost 
zero backing from from local people and local organizations at this point and that comes down to all sorts of cultural issues if the um cultural differences between japan and the west when it comes to people standing up to a problem because in japanese culture if you if you complain about a problem you are the problem so it's it's really it's really quite shocking So we have about eight or nine minutes left. Sure. And Sorry to go on so much. No, 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 no. This is this is no. This is this is great. This is really important stuff. Um, so I want you to leave a couple minutes to talk about uh how people can find out more about your work. But before you do that, um, so is this the really? You said you haven't even started with the bad stuff yet. Have you started with the bad stuff yet, or or does that have to come in the last five minutes here? Ah uh, yeah, well, the the worst of the stuff is is the um the animal waste management issue, if if it's if if we'd like to call it that. But that's the bit that I wanted to talk about. But then there's also something I haven't really touched on is like I said, well, just tiny touch, uh, tiny little bit touched on then is because of cultural reasons, basically nothing, nothing is being done to protect Japanese giant salamanders other than the law. Well, nothing is being done. There's no practical conservation work being done other than bias, almost entirely in the whole country. There's lots. There's lots of rules about you know. There's the rules about don't touch them and don't do this and don't do that. But literally, there's no government ministry or anyone working towards practical conservation. And that's something that really is is a big problem and raising awareness and 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 educating people about the connection between the threats to nature and the threats to humans. So that that's kind of, you know, another huge mission that we've we've got to take on. And it's quite overwhelming, I'll be honest, Derek. It's really, you know, it's really you know, depressing actually, but I, I feel that and completely believe and, and, and understand that if, if I don't do it, if, if, if we don't do it as an organization, no one's going to do it. It took me, like I said, the English guy who doesn't speak fluent Japanese to really push home about this problem with the animal waste before it was even investigated. So how do you, um, how would you see a at least an, an at least slightly realistic, mm. um, positive movement developing around uh, that would that would do some tangible good for the for the Japanese giant salamander? What what are some um mm. so we, basically we 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 realized that there isn't going to be any help coming from within the area or very little help coming from within Japan itself even though this is a Japanese national treasure natural treasure rather so what we've been focusing on is connections to international experts and you know, t telling the world about this problem and lots of lots of non-Japanese have come to this area to support us and to do viewing tours, to do conservation tours. So spreading the word, the word internationally is definitely something that we can do. And we've been doing pretty well, to be honest. Like we had um, a group of lead leading researchers, some, you know, top people in the IUCN, came just to the end of last month and we did 10 days of research with you know a group of 16 people all non-japanese people from you know mostly at their own expense come and we did really um you know detailed surveys so we're just waiting for that information to come and then we will present that data to the local government and say because their, their kind of line is well there's no data there's no evidence of a problem when it's clear that you know just go and look at them clawing up against the wall, then you know it's a problem. 
So that's something we've been doing, and that's what we've been focusing on. Um, and I, in yeah, sorry. Um, so a, a couple of things. One of them is, um, is there is there any chance of making these work parties like the 23, I think it was, Marines? Yeah. Uh, a regular thing, either with them or with uh, local junior high students or local high school students, or yeah, or is there is there any chance of getting those to be to be regular work parties? Yeah, so with the Marines are coming again in early October. I've got you know some heavy stuff that needs lifting. For example, there's this tunnel under a road that's blocked up, which is uh, probably uh, preventing the salamanders moving in that area so they're going to come i'm going to get my chainsaw up chop up all the wood that's that's blocking this tunnel and then have them move and dig out so the water flows through so that, that that's good the marines are definitely interested in coming again we we yeah obviously we we're trying to reach out to local people as well and 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 school groups but it's really hard it's really hard to find teachers and, and, and students who are motivated enough to do something about it. And then also you have the fact that in this area, there's virtually no young people anymore. It's really a, a problem, uh, an area with a, an aging population problem. And very few young people, which actually makes it a bit more of a worry in the future because these pockets of land are you know, who, which are now being, which are now owned and being managed by these old people in the 80s and 90s, they're, as they're dying off, then who's going to take control of these plots of land? It could quite possibly be the animal farms or someone that represents, who will buy it for almost nothing and then allow the animal farms to do it because they receive some cash. So this, this is really such a, a big problem. But you're right. I think. I'm sorry if I just sound kind of down. It's just been a tough couple of days with it, really. But no, I mean, I it. I don't. I don't know how anybody who looks at anything in the natural world right now is not uh, brokenhearted at every moment. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just all bad and getting worse. Yeah. And and in the midst of it, you know, we have to we have to find a know, way. Find find a way to help however we can at every moment so i have a couple of questions we're running out of time but i got a couple more sure. questions one of them is um what happened in 1951 to make it so they could at least stop that slaughter mm. but what, what has gotten worse between 1951 and now in terms of care in terms of public care about the salamanders that's one question what? the other question is going to be about your work Sure. I mean, in terms of what, I mean, 1951, basically, from my understanding, is that it was clear and alarm bells were rung um, in the scientific community in Japan that the salamanders were being eaten out of existence. So they had to kind of act in a really, str you know, strong manner to stop that happening. I think that must have been a really obvious threat. Just the, the the numbers that were being harvested versus versus the number that exists in the wild, so they stopped it. But th this is the problem, though, because many Japanese people believe that that their country is somehow in harmony with nature. Like, and th this is a prime example. So, if you ask an average Japanese person that's even heard of a giant salamander. You know what? How? How? What's the condition of the salamanders in the wild now? They might well say, "Oh, well, they're a special national treasure, so they're fine. They're being looked after." Well, and our point is always about if you don't protect the habitat, that it doesn't matter if you've protected the animal, because if you're going to tip concrete around it so it can't move, it doesn't matter if someone can't come along and touch it. Do you know what I mean? So we, we really have to, it's, yeah, education is key and, and trying to make people more understanding of, of the connection of, of what the government does and what happens to the habitat to what happens to the animals within it. 
just saying don't touch it is not enough. It actually, like I said, it, it creates the, the mindset, well, it's protected, so therefore everything is fine. So I keep I keep saying there's going to be two things. And for real, there's two things now because we really are running out of time. But sure. one of them is the second one's going to be how can people find out more about about your work, like sure. website, Internet, all that stuff. And but the, before that, I want you to give two quick, cool, tiny facts about Japanese salamanders that are just Japanese giant salamanders that are just cool things. Mm, OK, just give me a moment just to see what i haven't talked about so far um they don't even have to have a point just like like really neat things okay just see what i think okay so what one of them is that in, in japanese the japanese name is osan what quite complicated names but basically it means giant pepper fish which is not that accurate really obviously but basically, when an, uh, a Japanese giant salamander is stressed, it secretes a, a white liquid for its skin. And that has a smell somewhat similar to a plant which is called Japanese pepper. So that's why it's called Japanese pepper fish. Um, that's one cool fact, I think. Um, also, a lot of folklore... Um, Japan's a kind of, you know, a myths and, and uh, folklore kind of country, um, embracing country. And there's a, 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 a river monster called the Kappa. And a lot of the uh, characteristics of the Kappa are shared with the giant salamander. So probably back before science was, you know, really established in Japan, this mysterious and giant river creature that lives, you know, comes out at nighttime and can bite, you know, can swallow up creatures, really created this image of this sort of mysterious river dragon. That's great. So how can people find out about your work? Yeah, so we have a website, um, which is www.sustainabledyson. Dyson is spelled D-I-S, sorry, D-A-I-S-E-N, sustainabledyson.org. If you're on Instagram, we have, if you look for the handle Japanese Giant Salamanders, then that's us. Um, and via there or by my own website, which is bushidojapan.com, you can organize, you can come in and join a, 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 a viewing tour, uh, which we collect data on, or a conservation tour where we collect biometrics. Um, yeah, those, those ways are best. Well, thank you so much for all of that. And thank you for your work on the world. And thank you for being on the program. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Richard Pierce. This is Jarek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.